Hello everyone, this is Deborah Richardson and today I am putting the AP in Happy where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. This podcast will give a voice to accounts payable team members by talking about the growing reality of cyber attacks in their world and which vendor setup and vendor management techniques they can apply to protect the vendor master file from fraud. If you are looking for vendor process training for you or your entire vendor team, head over to my site at DeborahRRichardson.com and click on the Vendor Team Training Solved button to learn more about what is included in the monthly or annual plan and also to download a 2021 training schedule. Get the training that you and your team needs to avoid payment fraud, duplicate vendors, compliance fines, and more. I receive questions all the time uh, on the vendor process. Maybe on the next episode, I will share the top three that I received. But today, I wanted to share three not so frequently asked questions that may resonate with you, especially given the changes so many vendor teams put into place as a result of the changes of the past 18 months. Keep listening. Welcome to episode 165, three not so frequently asked questions when onboarding new vendors. Now, I always talk about the fact that I have a uh, training uh, pass. So I have a vendor process team training pass where for one rate, you can sign up your whole team and then you get access to 52 weeks. Actually, it's probably 49 with the holidays. Um, But every Thursday, there is a weekly training on a different topic and I have a uh, schedule where you can, you know, sign up, uh, look to see what you want to sign up for, and then sign up for that. I also have um, some uh, separate trainings that are on Wednesdays that that other people pay for. That the folks in the trade with the training pass, those members get that for free. But I also offer on Fridays uh, weekly Q and A sessions, and those Q and A sessions are two hours long, and it's really a drop in type of thing because who wants to spend two hours on a Friday? Um, asking questions. But I will tell you, I spend two hours every Friday of my time uh, uh, just being on that call and people drop in, ask their questions, get their responses and leave. And then some folks will will drop in and they will stay on the call to see what uh, pain points and responses uh, are out there with other uh, vendor teams. So uh, m- most drop in and drop off. I, however, am on the entire two-hour period. So I do get um, a lot of questions and a lot of them are the same questions. So I get questions that way. And then I am also with um, the organization called IOFM, the Institute of Finance and Management. 
Um, I am the axe, the expert for all vendor uh, management or vendor maintenance uh, category questions. So I get a lot of questions from from there as well. Um, but I have three uh, questions that I think at least two of them are a result of the fact that um, there are some people that are processing in a hybrid situation, processing vendor requests in a hybrid situation. And there are some people who experience Experience fraud or want to just try to avoid fraud and have made some changes and uh, asked uh, about, you know, the feasibility of the changes that, that they're thinking about putting into place. And so we're going to start with actually that one. Um, and this is a question of a vendor team that put a change into place to kind of split up who's doing what task to uh, try to combat external fraud. So let's get into the first one. The first not so frequently asked question is, when you're onboarding a new supplier, does one person do the entire task Or do you split the job and have one person do the initial setup and a separate person or department take care of the banking information? And this is why I say it's a, uh, uh, it appears to be a change because they are trying to uh, offset the, you know, the fraud trend with uh, changing existing banking. And so here's my answer to that. When onboarding a vendor using a manual process, right, because they're not using a vendor self-registration portal, um, one team member within a department um, can handle all related tasks. And here's a high level of what I see that being based on my um, best practices and recommendations um, to avoid fraud, compliance fines, Uh, or compliance penalties, and just overall bad vendor data. So step one would be to authenticate the requester, um, the vendor, or the employee who submitted the request on behalf of the vendor. And then once you authenticate them, you need to review the supporting documentation that was submitted and Uh, Next, perform the applicable vendor validation. So that's the IRS 10 match, um, the OFAC watch list, um, check uh, uh, other, you know, country registration numbers for vendors. So it's not all about the IRS 10 match, right? If you don't, if you have a, a, a vendor, a foreign vendor, Um, That vendor may have a VAT number, they may have a GST number, um, they may have a business number if they're Canadian. And so you need to check um, those, uh, validate those numbers as well, as long as there's a resource. And if you want to know about resources, I will put a link in the show notes that has, um, uh, it's a link to my vendor validation um, resource uh, reference list with resource links. So it's like 25 different validations. And you can check to make sure you're doing all the uh, validations possible for your vendor. But anyway, so that's step three. And then the next step is performing confirmation for changes to existing vendor data. Um, and so I put that in there just uh, because they did mention um, the banking. And so I um, uh, that can be done for banking, um, also for remit addresses um, as well, because uh, I know a lot of you are still out there with checks. And then also for emails, because emails uh, do require 
um, are required for confirmations and you just don't want to change one because the froster sent it to you, right? So you want to do confirmations for that. Um, and that is, of course, unless you use another method for authentication, but that is another podcast, which I probably have done one on there on that topic of authenticating the data. So you don't have to um, perform that confirmation phone call, right? Because it's so hard to get the vendors on the phone. Um, But in any event, the next step then would be data entry into the accounting system or ERP once you have validated all that information is correct. And then the last step um, would be sending the welcome letter to the uh, new vendor or sending um, a notification if you made a change to an existing vendor, letting them know that you made a change to their account. And so that's really it at a high level. You may be doing some of those. You may not be doing all of them, but it's a great high level to kind of base this answer or my response on. Um, And some organizations may choose to split those tasks to different team members or different departments due to limited staff, especially now, because I know a lot of accounts payable departments are um, are lightly staffed and that's not good news going into year end, but it's just a reality. Um, but one aspect to keep in mind, um, when determining if or how these tasks will be split is least privilege access and least, uh, least privilege access reduces fraud because it requires that access to vendor sensitive information, banking, social security number, um, be restricted to only those that need access to that information. So when performing those steps, the more team members that are required in the process the more team members that have access to vendor sensitive data, either within the vendor master file or just through handling the supporting documentation. For example, if there are multiple team members that all have access to edit the vendor master file and thus already have access to vendor sensitive information um, and the steps are split up between those team members, that should not be an issue. However, if team members outside of those that have access to edit the vendor master file are now brought into the process, then those new team members will now be exposed to the vendor sensitive information and will have access to perpetrate internal fraud or will now be susceptible to release vendor sensitive data um, in an external fraud scheme. So now you've got more people that can be social engineered. And a great example of that is I worked with a uh, specific client and they had initially had that confirmation phone call being done by someone outside of the vendor, uh, outside of the accounts payable vendor team, which means that now that person had access to the bank account information, which is sensitive data. And they actually were sending because they would save it all in the same um, uh, drive or folder. And they would give that you know, a person that was in a different department, um, they gave them access to it. And so now they had um, that new person or person in a different department had access to the W-9, which the W-9 could have a social security number on it. They had access to the banking, of course, because they had to call and confirm. And so now 
that new employee um, or employee that's outside of the vendor team had access to that sensitive information, which increases the potential for both internal and external fraud. External fraud, because they could be social engineered and reveal that sensitive information. And then internal fraud, because they could change that information to an account that they control. And so um, I don't recommend that that be done. Um, I do recommend that um, if the job be split, it be split between team members that already have access. All right. The second least frequently asked questions is around uh, 10 check. So I talk about 10 check.com all the time. Um, I wish they had an affiliate program, but um, I know that there are other resources out there that you can use um, that do what 10 check does. So 10 check for those of you that are not aware, um, they are a service, a website that you can um, uh, get a subscription for, sign up all your people um, to do IRS 10 matches. It's a lot quicker um, than waiting on your individual team members to register with the IRS um, e-services in order to do 10 matches. Yes, the IRS is free. 10check.com is a paid service, but if you don't want to wait or if you're dealing with a lot of contractors, it's an easy way to get people to do your team members to complete those IRS 10 matches um, without going through the setup process or the registration process for the IRS. In addition to that, it also allows you to uh, check the address. And many of us um, were going on to the USPS. Uh, it's, I think it's the zip code lookup tool. And we were, and we were doing um, the uh, validation of the address and also getting the format. And uh, IRS or 10check.com will do that as well. And then um, if you're um, separately from the IRS 10 match and the address lookup, now going to do the watch list um, uh, validations to make sure your vendor is not on a watch list. Then there was another site that you can go to to do like OFAC. Um, and if maybe if you're a, a hospital, you would also do the Office of Inspector General. If you are a um, uh, government agency, uh, then you would also look at SAM, the system of, of uh, award, um, and they have an exclusion list. And so you're not supposed to be doing vendors with those and those lists. And so you may have multiple different places that you're going to do the 10 match, the address validation, and then the uh, watch list validation. And 10 check has all of those. So it also has watch lists. Uh, as a matter of fact, it has 44 different watch lists. Um, you don't have to turn them all on, but they are there. Um, but in any event, um, so it has all of that. It also has the social security death master file check as well. So if you've got an SSN, um, you can verify that um, a fraudster is not giving you a uh, a SSN or social security number um, from a person that is deceased. So we'll do that check against the social security uh, administration record. So it's got a lot of stuff kind of balled up into one. So you're only doing one search, but what it doesn't have 
is it does not have a way to search for missing tax IDs. Now, if you have a tax ID and you don't have a name um, or you don't know what the right name is, you can put the tax ID in there and just put any name in the legal name and it'll search that against EIN records. And if the uh, legal name is in, if it's an EIN, you, you enter it in and there's a legal name in the EIN database, then TenCheck will pop that legal name up. So then you can figure out what their legal name should be. And you don't get that with the IRS uh, 10, 10 match, which for me, I think that that's worth it. Or it was when I was a practitioner for my team, because then we could tell um, those folks when we were dealing with people at the vendor's business that um, just didn't know how to fill it out correctly, didn't know how to fill out that W-9 correctly. Maybe they were putting the DBA name um, in the legal name because that's what they saw in their invoices, not realizing that that's not the structure of, uh, of their company. And so we could tell that. But um, long way to say that, no, it does not um, check for missing tax IDs. So if, and I know the timing of this um, podcast when it's being published is Thursday, uh, December 16th. And so you are all now probably um, trying to look at your vendor master file to see how many tax IDs you have missing um, to start doing those bulk uploads from the I or to the IRS or 10 check.com because they offer it as well. Um, so, uh, you're now identifying or noticing that some of those are missing. And so, uh, if you are cleaning your vendor master file and are missing tax IDs, um, the best way that I suggest is to just contact the vendor, um, send them a, uh, W-9 so that you have supporting documentation and have them send it back to you. And then you can do the IRS 10 match. And um, if that is successful, update your vendor record. That is the best way um, to to get that done. It may take some time and yes, it's all manual, um, but go ahead. And, and uh, that to me is the best way. Now, alternatively, there are some other options. So the Security Exchange Commission um, has a tool, it's called Edgar. Um, and if it's a public company, you can search Edgar. Um, and it's a database, I believe. Uh, it's a database or tool. Um, I may not be describing it correctly, but you can search um, and you can see if that is a public company, um, you can look at the documents that they have filed previously and the tax IDs um, may be listed on some of those financial reporting documents. Um, So for public companies, that's a great way to go. Um, If you have nonprofit vendors, um, there is a, a platform or website called Melissa Data. And you can search for free nonprofit vendors. uh, And if they have them in the database, it will pop up with their address and their tax ID. So that is another way to to find some tax IDs. And then the last way um, that's really formal um, because it is a paid subscription, um, but it's a tool called EIN Finder. Now I have used this in, a, in the past, um, but 
um, uh, it doesn't like you won't uh, get like a hundred percent. I think the best percentage that I've um, received as far as finding missing tax IDs is like forty percent. Um, and um, so if if you get approval to get that subscription, just understand that you're not going to get the um, you're not going to get the majority of them um, found. So which is why I say. Um, the best way is to just reach out to that vendor um, with a W-9, uh, a blank W-9 and have them fill it out and give it back to you. Now, if you do find any missing tax IDs on uh, either the uh, Edgar tool uh, on this uh, with the S- uh, Security Exchange Commission or with Melissa Data for nonprofit vendors or EIN Finder. Make sure that you also um, do a double check and do that IRS 10 match, whether you're doing that on 10check.com or you're doing it with the IRS. Um, I also know that there's some other. Um, uh, platforms that you may be using, especially this time of year, uh, 1099 software. I think 1099 Pro does it where they'll do the 10 match. But in any event, uh, make sure you do a 10 match with any uh, tax IDs that you have located, however you do that. All right. So that was number two, which I think is very relevant for this time uh, type of year because you don't want to file uh your 1099 um, returns or tax filing with the IRS and either have missing tax IDs because you know you're going to get penalties and you know you're going to get um, that CP2100 with those vendors on it, which is going to lead to that very manual B notice process. Um, And then you also don't want to file incorrect legal name and tax ID combinations. So make sure that you do your... um, uh, 10 match the bulk upload, even if it was correct at the time, the legal name and tax ID was correct at the time you uh, onboarded the vendor, you want to make sure nothing has changed because the vendors are more than likely not going to reach out to accounts payable unless there is a change with their remittance with them getting their payments. All right. Now the third, um, less frequently asked question, uh, for the vendor process is surrounding the OFAC list. And so this was another one that uh, the other one I think I was talking about when I said it's related to like the recent fraud. So the question is, if we periodically run supplier reports against the OFAC list, and that's the Office of Foreign Assets and Control, um, and a reminder that um, U.S. entities and individuals are not to do business with vendors that are on that list. Um, So the question is, if we periodically run supplier reports against the OFAC list, how long should we keep the file compared? comparisons. So my answer is, is to use the same retention schedule for the watch list results file as is, or that is required for the invoice or the purchase order or whatever drove that transaction. Um, the standard invoice activity, I believe is seven or 10 years, but your company may have a whole separate retention schedule. So make sure that you follow, um, that retention schedule and keep that comparison, 
um, for as long as you are doing business with um, the vendors that are included on there. Um, and so if you've got multiple vendors, you need to keep it as long as that, um, as the longest transaction or as long as vendors that are on that list continue to have transactions. And you also want to or may want to follow up internally to see if there is a separate retention schedule or maybe um, that is addressed in your risk management policy or procedure for risk compliance. Um, It should also include an internal process for when a vendor legal name actually does appear on the watch list. You need to know, um, or your team members need to know what to do. So reach out to confirm um, whether there is a separate retention schedule related to these OFAC um, lists or these watch list results. Um, And then also, uh, verify if there's an internal process when the vendor legal name does appear on one of those watch lists. All right. So that was the three least frequently asked questions or not so frequently asked questions when onboarding new vendors. So thanks everyone. I hope you enjoyed the 165th episode of the Putting the AP in Happy podcast, where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. Don't forget to check the show notes for the links mentioned in the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and writing a review of my podcast on the platform that you use to listen. Stay happy. Stay happy.